That's a great song. We haven't sung that song in a while. At least I haven't. Oh, thank you. Two years and five days. He keeps records. That's his mindset. He tracks these things. If you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking today at the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 11 as we continue on in our journey through this book of Romans. We come to a very unique passage in the text. And Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Now you can thank God for that right there. We'll point that out when we go through the exposition this morning. You can thank God for those words. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And before we read on, I just want to point out how the Apostle Paul, in defending the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God, keeps referring to scripture. See, when you get into a discussion with someone about election and the sovereignty of God, they'll give you all these emotional, rational arguments. Paul just says, let's go to the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. This is great argumentation of what Paul is doing here. Verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, according to God's gracious choice, But if it is by grace, boy, and don't miss this verse, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking? It is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world... And their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? That is one of the great texts pertaining to the sovereignty of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of it and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today with a profound sense, having read this passage of thy sovereignty, a profound sense of our responsibility that we have when it comes to hearing your word. Lord, we see here that your sovereignty can soften a heart and mind with your word, or that same sovereignty of yours can harden a heart and mind with your word. We pray that you would use your word to grant us a sanctification that comes from yielding to the Spirit of God in regard to the scriptures. Keep us from any type of arrogance and ignorance in religion. Develop us, Lord, and use us We pray that we'll become a church that does make people jealous because your word and your presence are here. And we can't help but pray today for Israel as we read a passage like this. We pray that many Jewish people will find their way to this church 
and they'll love truth and be here. We pray for this city, we pray for the state, we pray for the country, and we pray for the leaders. We ask that you would turn their minds to your truth. We pray that you would turn their minds to salvation, turn their minds into making decisions that please you. Use your sovereignty to cause them to make choices that will enable you to bless us. We pray for the sick of this church, Lord, again. When we do that, we are acknowledging thy supreme sovereignty. We have several in this church, Lord, that are seriously ill, and doctors and nurses can only do so much. So we ask that you use their skills to help them, but then we pray that you would do the rest. Use your sovereign power to bring them healing and life and enjoyment. We pray today for those who have listened to your word, and especially in light of this passage. We would pray for those who have listened to your word over and over and over again who have not responded. We ask that they would realize the gravity of that and that you would work in their minds and hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced the number one sin of all time is the sin of pride. Pride is the sin that prompts all the other sins. I mean, it really is the thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven and one-third of the angels with him. He was proud. It's pride that prompts someone to say, I don't have to listen to the Word of God. I don't have to do what the Word of God says. I can just live my life my way. It's really an issue of pride. I was in a discussion this week with a person who was talking to someone, and the person said, well, the person to whom this, this person was talking, they said about this person, the person is really a good person, but they're just proud. That can't be when it comes to God. It's impossible. Could you say a person is a good person, but they just murder? The person is really a good person, but they rape. person is really a good person, but they're caught up in immoral stuff. The person is really a good person, they steal, they're drunk, they're a thief. No. And you can't say that about a person who's proud, because it doesn't equate in the sight of the Lord. You cannot possibly be a person who's proud and be a good person in the estimation of Almighty God. Now, in a normal functioning family, there are many things that parents do for a baby, and the baby has no knowledge what they're doing. The baby has no knowledge of the fact that the dad's going to work every day to provide for the needs of that baby. The baby has no knowledge that the mom is up checking up on that baby and making sure it's safe through the night. The baby has no concept whatsoever as to why you're putting it in a seat in a car facing the back. A baby has no knowledge of why you're putting them in a contraption that has bars on it called a crib or playpen. The baby has no knowledge why you would permit a doctor to put a needle into its skin. The baby has no knowledge of any of that. The fact of the matter is, when you're a parent, you have total sovereignty over that baby. And you do things over that baby that that baby doesn't understand or know because you love it, you're looking out for its welfare. Now suppose that baby were of a mind that could actually defy everything that you do. Or that baby would say, well, you're not going to touch me. I don't need you. I'm just going to go this on my own. I don't need you to look in on me. I don't need you to take care of me. I don't appreciate the things that you do. That's the way it is with some people when it comes to Almighty God. They're the babies in this. 
They're the children in this. He's the one with the sovereignty. We don't have it. And yet there are people that want to debate and argue with Almighty God. One of the greatest of all theological studies that truly does honor and exalt the Lord is the study of the sovereignty of God. God is a sovereign God. He has power to prevent things. He has power to permit things or not permit things. He can direct and determine the outcome of events. It's impossible, impossible for any finite sinful human to outsmart or beat or defeat his sovereign God. So instead of proudly rejecting it, people should just humbly submit to it. Because God's sovereignty will always prevail. In the end, God's will will be done. God's sovereignty will always win. And if you want to see a chapter that communicates that, spend the next couple of weeks with us as we go through Romans 11. Romans 11 is a chapter in which Paul drives home the importance of the sovereignty of God, specifically in regard to Israel. Now, in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, we signed off last week, Paul said that Israel was disobedient and they were an obstinate people. When Jesus Christ came and offered Israel a grace salvation package, which included him being their king, she rejected him. That's a serious thing, by the way. Don't kid yourself. It's a serious thing to listen to the word of God multiple times and reject it. That's what Israel did. They listened to the word of God over and over again, and they rejected Jesus Christ. So the question comes, did they beat God's sovereignty? Did they thwart the sovereign plan of God? Even to this day, very few Jewish people believe in Jesus Christ as the God, Savior, Messiah, King. So did Israel defeat the sovereign plan of the sovereign God? Paul answers that here. And what Paul says is the present condition of the nation Israel is perfectly consistent with the sovereign plan and sovereign program of the sovereign God of the Bible. Israel has tried to meet the standards of God's righteousness and she's failed. Her works can't get her the kingdom. She doesn't understand that yet, but that's still reality. Her works system cannot get her the kingdom. Her system of religion is not going to work. But even with that, when she's dedicated to her religion and dedicated to her works, can she beat God's sovereignty? Not a chance. The one thing that the world can rest in is the fact that God is sovereign. He's the supreme ruler. That's what sovereignty actually means, supreme ruler over all. God is sovereignly working out his program, and even though at the present time it doesn't seem like it's connected much to Israel, you don't look at the nation Israel and go, man, what a reflection of the glory of God. You don't do that today. I mean, you look at nation, and they're just constantly in turmoil. Every time they're on the news, that's what you see. So you don't see a nation being blessed of God. So even though at the present time it doesn't seem like he's connected to Israel, he's working out his will. Now, the will of God right now, at this present time, is focused on, for the most part, Gentiles. We learn from Acts chapter 15 that what God is doing is calling out Gentiles for his name. He's calling out people from all over the world into a relationship with him. We learn from Matthew 16, he's building a church. We learn from 1 Corinthians 12, he's forming a body. That's what he's doing right now. But that doesn't mean that Israel's out of the loop of the sovereignty of God. So what Paul does here is he, 
develops two main sovereign realities that we want to see. The first reality is God has not abandoned Israel, verses 1 to 6. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now the central point of this discussion comes from verse 1. It's based on the question of whether or not God has rejected his nation Israel at the present time when it doesn't appear like he's really connected to her at the present time. So has he completely abandoned her? And Paul's answer is, may it never be. Don't you ever think like that? Don't you ever talk like that? God hasn't abandoned his program with Israel. The obstinate rebellion and disobedience of Israel has not caused God to abandon her or abandon his plan with her. And you had better understand that and you had better believe that. Because if it would be possible for God to abandon Israel, it would be possible for God to abandon you and me. See, if God can say something and then go back on it, then the possibility of him rejecting us becomes a possibility. Arminianism is right. I mean, if God says whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have everlasting life and he can go back on his word, then we can't put confidence in that. So when you read that statement, may it never be, you take it to heart. Just as he can't ever go back on promises he's made to Israel, he can't ever go back on promises he's made to us. And there are many people who falsely tell you the church has replaced Israel. That's just heresy. God has not replaced the nation Israel with any other nation. He has not abandoned Israel. He has not rejected Israel. And even though you have a variety of churches today teaching this replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel, we need to understand this. There's a reason why Israel right now is not in the national limelight, judicially speaking, in the presence of God. But there is a plan for Israel that will never be, never be erased. And there are four evidences that Paul offers to prove that Israel hasn't been abandoned. And the first evidence is the evidence of a direct statement in verse 1. May it never be. May it never be. God has made some amazing promises to Israel. I am going to just take you back to Jeremiah for just a second. This will be worth your turning to. Go left in your Bible for many pages back to Jeremiah in chapter 31. I just want you to see a couple of things that God has promised to Israel. We can take these from multiple books in the Old Testament. I've selected two from the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, if you'd go back there, please, I want you to notice what God says beginning at verse 35 to Israel. Jeremiah 31, 35, he says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured... And the foundations of the earth stretched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God says, it is impossible for this program with Israel to end. If you could do all this stuff right here, then the possibility is there, but you can't. You're in no position to even analyze this. God says, I'm not going to cast off Israel. Now flip over in Jeremiah to chapter 33. Just go over a couple pages. 
And I'll have you read with me verse 25 and 26. Here's what we read in Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 25. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for a day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of the heaven and earth I've not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. God says, just like you see, day and night come, that's the way my promises are. Day and night comes, my promises to Israel will be fulfilled, and I'm going to fulfill them. So the real theological issue at stake here is whether or not God can go back on his word. Here, God has made all of these wonderful promises to national Israel, and then he reinforces these promises multiple times in many Old Testament passages. And he promises that I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a king, a righteous king. He spells out the land boundaries in the scriptures that he's going to give to them. And then he says, I'm going to make you a nation that will be esteemed by all nations of the world. So the real question is, is God telling the truth? When he said that in the Old Testament, is God a God who can lie? Could Israel make a liar out of God? Paul's answer is, may it never be. May it never be. And the problem, as I see it, is that we're living in a world of mistrained and misinformed theological imbeciles who know very little about sound doctrine. They don't carefully go through books of the Bible. They postulate their ideas and opinions that they get from who knows where, and they give it to people every Sunday. But I'm telling you this, you cannot honestly read the Bible without seeing that God has a wonderful plan for the nation Israel. Dr. Chafer one time calculated four-fifths of the Bible relates to Israel. So Paul says, I'm just using as a proof that God will always fulfill promises is a direct statement, may it never be. God will not go back on his word. Boy, that's good for you to know. It's good for me to know. Because if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, like we saw, if you'll call on him and invite him into your life, he'll never reject you. He'll never go back on his word and say, whoops, he made a mistake. No, God will always be with his people. The second evidence Paul gives is Paul's own conversion. He says in verse 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. The essence of what Paul's saying here is, look, you want to know whether or not God's abandoned Israel? Well, take a look at me. I'll use myself as an example. And he does, in the original, it's very emphatic here, where Paul says, I, I myself, look at me. I'm living proof that God has not abandoned Israel because God saved me and I'm an Israelite. And he tracks it right there. I came as a descendant, literally out of the seed of Abraham. I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was a Jew who's pinpointing the tribe he's from, which means he was a member of the smallest tribe of the twelve, a member of one of the most faithful tribes of the twelve. He said, I'm living proof myself that God has not abandoned Israel. After the death of Solomon, the twelve tribes of Israel split. Benjamin stayed with Judah and did not get involved in the initial apostasy of Israel. She initially remained faithful to God, but then she drifted too. Paul says, I'm a member of that tribe. I'm a member of the nation Israel, and God saved me. And by the way, Paul always credits God with saving him. You never find Paul trying to take credit for him coming to Jesus Christ. He said, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, by God's grace, I am what I am. 
There's a great, great thing here to see in Paul's testimony of his conversion. Because I think one of the best things that we can do is offer ourselves as evidence of the fact that God saves the kind of people we are. I mean, God saves us. I mean, I've personally known of those who've been involved in every possible imaginable sin that you could come up with, and they could stand up and say, well, God saved me. I've known of people who were homosexuals. I've known of people who were in prostitution. I've known of a person who was a stripper. I've known of drunks and drug addicts. I've known of people who've been married, single, divorced. I've known of people who've been all ethnic backgrounds. I mean, I've known of people who were Chinese, and they were Japanese, and they were Americans, and they were Africans, and they were Europeans and Australians. I've personally known people who have been that, and I've even known Dutch people. (laughs) That's hard to believe, isn't it? I do. I do. And every one of these people could say, did God abandon us when we were that way? Nope. I'm proof. I'm proof that God still is in the business of saving people. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I am living proof that God has not abandoned Israel. And we're living proof that God has not abandoned us either. He has given us great everlasting life through faith in Christ. Now, the third evidence is the evidence of God's sovereignty in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul's argument here is, look, God's sovereign foreknowledge is a knowledge of everything that God was going to permit and do before he allowed it to happen. That's what foreknowledge is. All of the promises of God are rooted in the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge includes all the decrees that God makes. It's not like God looks in the future and He thinks he knows what's going to happen. He knows everything, the end from the beginning. So he obviously, in foreknowledge, can look and see what's going to happen in every case. What this practically means is God made all of the promises to Israel, and when he made those promises to Israel, he was fully aware of the fact that she was going to rebel against him. He elected her anyway. Why did he do that? It's his prerogative. It's a prerogative of divine sovereignty. God can't go back on his own elective decree. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, as far as I'm concerned, if God does not bring the Jews back into Palestine, then the Bible is not a trustworthy book. Barnhouse went on to tell the story of the king of Prussia who was discussing whether or not the Bible was true. He was arguing with a chaplain, and the king said to the chaplain, prove to me in one word that the Bible is true, and the chaplain said, Israel. All throughout history, powers have tried to exterminate the Jew." There's a movement right now to try to exterminate the Jew. Fact of the matter is, I would say, generally speaking, most Gentiles don't like the Jews. We happen to love them in this church, and we pray for them in this church. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, Greece, and Rome, they all tried to exterminate the Jew. After them, you have the Turkish Arabs, then you have the Egyptian Arabs, and then you have the Syrians, and they tried to exterminate the Jew. Then you get a guy like Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein. I mean, they've all taken their shots at Israel. They all wanted those Jews gone, and they all failed. In the tribulation, when the Antichrist is ruling the world, he literally will make an extermination edict to exterminate the world of the Jew, and he won't be able to do it. Why? Why is it that Israel is still here? Because, ladies and gentlemen, God will not ever cast his people away whom he foreknew. And that is good news for us. Because if he won't cast her away, 
he won't cast us away either. Which brings us to his fourth evidence, the evidence of Elijah's experience. The illustration that Paul uses here of Elijah comes from 1 Kings 19. Elijah's in a cave. He's all alone and he's depressed. He thought that he was the only one left who was faithful to the word of God. He was the only one left telling the truth of God. He was the only one left, he thought, who had not worshipped Baal. He stood up against 450 prophets and he felt, I'm the only one who even cares about the word of God. And he frankly is in this cave, he wants to die. Now he doesn't commit suicide, but he wants God to kill him. And God says to Elijah, look, there are 7,000 Israelites who have been faithful to me and my word, and they've not bowed down to Baal. It's a big mistake to look for big numbers of those who love Jesus Christ and the word of God, because usually it's not found in the big numbers. It's a mistake to think, though, that we are the only ones who are serious about God and his word, because there are those pocket churches mostly small churches that are very serious about God and his word. And Elijah was thinking, well, I'm just all alone here. And Paul's point is, even though it looked to Elijah, like God's program was down to one guy, God's program was down to one prophet, God still has his hand on a nucleus with which he was sovereignly working and which he was using. So to Paul and to others, it appeared like there aren't hardly any Jews who are buying into this, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. It doesn't look like God's hand is even on the Jews again. And Paul says, look, there are some, there's a remnant out there who are saved. And he says in verse 5, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul says the same is true when it comes to God's saving work with Israel. There's a remnant in Israel right now in the grace age who has been sovereignly chosen by God. We have Jewish people in this church, Jewish blood in them. We don't put stars by them, but God's hands on them. God's hands on these people. They're proof. They're proof. The fact that they love the Lord, they love Jesus Christ, they love the word of God. And then Paul develops the theology of the grace gospel in verse 6, and you don't want to miss it. If it is by grace, works cannot be connected to it, or it is not grace. That's where Israel's problem lies. They just think they can work their way to God. They think they can work out some deal to God. Works will not ever save you. Works, I don't care how good you think they are, will not ever save you. Grace will save you. You cannot save yourself by coming up with a scheme of works. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And notice carefully what Paul is stating here. And boy, don't miss this. Mr. Miles first pointed this out to me many years ago. He said, this verse right here settles the whole issue of people that are very confused about this. Salvation is not a combination of grace and works. Salvation is all grace, no works. Works can't be in the equation of true saving grace. I mean, and if you want to see a great illustration of that, look at that thief on the cross who's hanging next to the Lord Jesus Christ. What possible works could that guy do? He's dying. He's dying on a cross. He had a life of crime, 
up until that moment, and he looks to the Lord and basically says, Lord, would you save me? Now that's grace, relying totally on Jesus Christ to save him. He couldn't look to his works. His works had been lousy. That's what got him crucified. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has always been the problem with the Jew, and that has always been the problem with people in religion. As Paul mentioned, Jews think they can work out a relationship with God by keeping the law. That's why they have these Sabbath day ritual stuff. They really believe it. These Jews actually think that our religious rituals and our religious works that we go through, it's going to save us. But it isn't going to save them. Works can't be in the equation of salvation. Works cannot give them the kingdom. The only thing that can give them the kingdom is Jesus Christ. They should have accepted him and believed in him. He's the one in the position to give them the kingdom. But this business of trusting in works, rather than in Jesus Christ alone, is not a problem just to the Jews. This is a problem of the Mormons, the Catholics, the Muslims, the Jehovah's Witness, the Seventh-day Adventists, and it is a big problem of those who hold to lordship salvation. Because those people are very confused. They think their works are somehow mixed into grace. I'll tell you what, one day, all those lordship salvation people are going to meet Paul. I want to be there to watch that. <laughs> they were real confused. They've messed people up. Well, if you really want to be saved, you've got to believe in the Lord, but then you've got to make him Lord of your life. If you really want to be saved, you have to believe in the Lord and purpose to be his disciple. If you really want to be saved, you have to bow to his lordship. That's what you have to do. What does that even mean? What are you even talking about? If you really want to be saved, you've got to believe in the Lord, but then you've got to look for the works, and if the works aren't there, you really aren't saved. Don't you understand this? Works are not connected to grace. Take it from Paul. Don't listen to the humanistic arguments. Take it from Paul. Just what he says. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul says works are not connected to the grace of God. When you place your faith totally and only in Jesus Christ to save you, you're saved. If you believe that you're saved by God's grace, that eliminates the possibility of being saved by works. If you believe you're saved by works, you're eliminating the possibility of being saved by God's grace. It's the critical issue for everybody. How do you think you're saved? What do you believe? What do you trust in? If you rely totally on Jesus Christ and the grace of God to save you, you're saved. If you rely on your works to save you, you're not saved. Because you're relying on you. The grace of God that saves demands no works in the equation whatsoever. That's the problem with Israel. They think all of this religious ritual and these meals that they have, and they go through these Passover dinners. Their Passover has already been nailed to the cross. But they think all of that stuff is somehow meriting a relationship with God. You can't be saved by works. It's by grace in Jesus Christ. He's developed that in the first part of the book of Romans. Which brings us to the second reality. God has sovereignly blinded Israel. Verse 7. What then? What Israel's seeking, it hasn't obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Israel has been, as we learn in chapter 10, verse 21, obstinate and disobedient to the grace gospel that's connected to Jesus Christ, and they've been obstinate to those who have presented the grace gospel to them, and they've been that way for years. So you look at Israel and you say, well, 
Has God's sovereignty been defeated by Israel's rejection? In fact, her rejection proves God's sovereignty. Because God says, I actually have a sovereign plan in all this. And my sovereign plan is, I have given Israel a temporary blindness, or as he calls it, a hardening. I've given them a hardening, what he says there in verse 7. The word hardens a medical term. It is a term that would imply that he's put like a scab, a callousness over their minds and hearts so that they can't respond to the gospel. I mean, if you cut yourself, you usually develop a scab or a callus that forms over the cut so that it doesn't cut anymore. What's happened to Israel at the present time is God has hardened the hearts and minds so that the nation can't even feel or sense his truth anymore or his presence. Now listen carefully to what is being said in the context of this. If you say today... I won't respond. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I won't respond. Tomorrow, it may be you can't respond. That's the warning here. What is described here is it can get to a point where God can extend a hard-heartedness for years. And this came after this nation Israel had rejected Jesus Christ and has rejected him for over 2,000 years. And if you reject truth long enough, what God can do is actually harden you so you can't respond to truth anymore. And even in that, you won't beat God. Because he'll have a purpose in that. And there are four critical facts that Paul develops about God's sovereignty in this. He says, first of all, Israel's blindness is partial. What shall we say then? Verse 7, Israel is seeking it as not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Not all Jews have been hardened by God. There's a remnant. There's a remnant that God preserves. They're out there. They're not wearing name tags. We don't see them. We don't know them. But I guarantee you there's a remnant of Jewish believers who've been called by God even at the present time. Secondly, Israel's blindness is God-ordained. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. It's God who gives blindness to people. It's God who lets them see truth. It's God who blinds their minds from seeing truth. You don't want to be playing around with truth. I believe when the Spirit of God convicts a person of truth in the Word of God, right then and there, that's when you want to respond to that. I think when the Word of God goes forth, the Spirit of God is in the truth of God, and it's at that point where the person needs to say, I need to apply that, because if you persistently reject the truth of God, it can get to a point where God says, I am actually going to put you in a stupor. I've given you enough chances, but I'll put you in a stupor, and you won't be able to have a good relationship with me, and you won't be able to accomplish what I could have accomplished. The third fact is, Israel's blindness is for her rebellion. Verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block of retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Paul proves his position again by the use of the word of God. That's where you want to take arguments. People want to argue about the sovereignty of God. Just say, that's nice, you got your view. Now what does the scripture say? That's what Paul says. 
And Paul quotes a messianic psalm of David here, which is Psalm 69. And in that psalm, David is speaking about the fact that Israel rejected her Messiah. And because of the fact that she rejected her Messiah, God judged her for her rebellion. He put her into this stupor. He gave darkness to their eyes so that they couldn't see. And again, ladies and gentlemen, the warning that we need to seriously consider here is you can rebel against God's word one too many times. You can hear the word of God over and over again. You can hear people say, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to call out to Jesus Christ to save you. And you can just say, I'll think about it. Food for thought. We'll give it some thought. You can do that just one too many times. And God can step in and say, I'm darkening your ability to see anymore and hear. It's a serious text. But even if that happens, even if God does that, you don't beat the sovereignty of God because of the fourth fact. God says Israel's blindness is for the Gentiles. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. No, they stumbled, but they haven't fallen out of the sovereign program of God. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. The fact that there's a hardening, the fact that there's not a, right now a national elation in a relationship with God in the nation Israel doesn't mean the whole program of God has been cut off here. God has temporarily put a halt to the national program with Israel. He still has a remnant of people he's working with in Israel, but he's put a national halt to the national program with Israel so that people like us could be brought into a relationship with him. This is where the sovereignty of God reaches an amazing level. God sovereignly ordained the blindness of Israel because he had a sovereign plan. His sovereign plan was going to reach out to Gentiles who were non-Jewish all over the world. And there are three ways God's sovereignty is at work in the Gentile world. Gentiles now have an opportunity to be saved. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you understand this today? I hope, and I know most of you have believed in Jesus Christ, but I sure hope you understand what's being said here. You have an opportunity to have a relationship with God that most of Israel does not have right now. You have an opportunity to have a personal relationship with God. Don't be like Israel. When this thing's over, you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to take over your heart and mind. Don't be like Israel. You just hear that and just go on and do nothing about it. Secondly, the Gentiles will provoke Israel to jealousy. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a church. We're supposed to be an individual that reflects having a relationship with God that makes people that are religious like Jews jealous. They should be able to look at us and say, you know, they've got something over there. There's something there we don't have. They've got something in their life. We don't have that. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. That's one of the reasons God has given us the opportunity to believe in the Lord. So when you believe in the Lord, and as you'll see when we get into chapter 12, when you're transforming your mind by the power of the Word of God, and you're allowing the Spirit of God to convict you and mature you and change you and direct you, you become a statement to the world of God's grace, and it makes people jealous. And the third way that God's sovereignty is at work in the Gentiles' world, is we're a prelude to her blessings. Don't miss verse 12. 
those that hold a replacement theology, don't miss verse 12. If their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Boy, take note of that. We haven't replaced Israel. What God has done in an amazing sovereign plan and an amazing demonstration of grace is he has put a temporary blindness on the vast majority of the nation Israel so he could extend the grace offered to people like us all over the world, non-Jews all over the world, so that we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your background, God has a sovereign plan for your life. And if you want to experience that perfect plan, if you want to experience the greatest blessings of your life, you invite Jesus Christ to take over your life. Don't be like Israel and harden your heart against that. Invite him to come in. But understand this very clearly. Your salvation, my salvation, has nothing to do with works. It's all grace. Grace found totally, completely, and only in Jesus Christ. Believe in him, believe on him, and you'll be saved. May we pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, we would give you an opportunity to do private business with God right where you sit. This is business between you and the Lord. God sees your heart. When the truth is presented, there's the spirit of God's presence. He knows your heart. So just invite Jesus Christ to save you. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you that in this amazing plan that you have foreordained in eternity past that includes the nation Israel and what a massive program and plan that is. We are so grateful that you include us. Who in the world are we as individuals, Lord, to have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who in the world are we? But we thank you for it on this Lord's Day. Thank you for Jesus Christ who did it all. In his name we pray, amen.